Good afternoon and welcome to Keys to Minimizing Threat Alert to Remediation Time, a health system CIO media and production sponsored by Clear Data. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Adam Zoller, CISO at Providence. Kim Alkire, System Director of Cyber Wellness and Acting CISO at Health First, and Chris Bowen, CISO and Founder at Clear Data. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Kim, uh, why don't you get us started? Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, hi, everybody. I'm Kim. I am the System Director for Cyber Wellness at Health First. We are on the East Coast of Central Florida. Um, we're an integrated delivery network, which means that we have a hospital system. We have four hospitals, we have a medical group, and we're also a payer. So that gives us some additional complexities that a typical hospital system might not be up against. Um, in my role, I have responsibility for things and this commonly found in the security teams like information security. So the GRC policy stuff, um, that side of the house for me also includes disaster recovery and training and awareness. And then on the cybersecurity engineering side, the more technical side of the house as well, um, firewalls, EDR, identity and access management. So everything that encompasses the reduction of risk when it comes to technology kind of falls under my umbrella. Very good. Thanks, Kim. Adam? Hey, good morning. Adam Zoller. I'm the CISO of Providence. We're a hospital system on the West Coast. We have 50 plus hospitals, a thousand plus clinics, um, a health plan, a high school, a college, um, about 125,000 full-time caregivers and another 100 plus thousand non-employed caregivers, so contractors, support staff. Um, in my role, I lead a uh, traditional cybersecurity team, identity and access management, governance, risk and compliance, um, security ops and engineering, uh, chief of staff function, which is our comms training and awareness, cyber strategy, budgeting, planning, that type of thing, and uh, global office in Hyderabad, India for 24 by 7, follow the sun capabilities for things that demand it. Things like our, our SOC, our identity and access management operations, um, some governance functions, et cetera. Excellent, Adam. Thank you. Chris? Hi, my name is Chris Bowen. I'm the founder and the CISO at Clear Data. Uh, Clear Data creates, manages, and secures cloud systems that transmit or store or process PHI, protected health information, as you all know. And we do that with uh, continuous compliance, managed detection and response, and uh, state-of-the-art cloud operations. And my role is, is really, uh, I'm a C-level executive that leads the, uh, the security function, the, the risk function, much, much uh, of the same things that Kim does. Uh, as well as compliance, uh, we also have a managed detection and response team that, that falls within our services organization. And we're excited to talk to you today and, and share some of our thoughts around meantime to uh, resolution. Excellent. Very good. All right, Kim, let's start with you. Um, talk about the different ways your organization obtains threat intelligence. 
Yeah. Um, so we are big proponents being healthcare of the different ISACs. Uh, so HISAC, Health ISAC. Um, we actually have one of my managers on an advisory council for HISAC. Get a lot of benefits out of that, including some intel data. Um, we a lot of times just the the chatter that we hear in those threads could be the first time we hear a glimmer of, of a problem we need to be aware of with a, a vendor or uh, one of our partners. Um, but we also look to have um, integration with some of our key key tools like our our SIM, our EDR, our firewalls with different sources. Um, we have open source feeds in our SIM, which we use Devo. Um, and we're actually working to build out some additional sources right now. All right. Very good. Adam? Yeah, we um, we use multiple sources to curate threat intel. So, um, you know, as Kim mentioned, we're a member of the health ISAC as well. Um, I think from an ISAC perspective, um, you know, it's there's a lot of organizations that participate in the ISACs. The threat intel tends to vary in quality and applicability to your organization. So I find that um, the ISAC details that you get, you have to kind of treat with a grain of salt or enrich yourself to make it relevant to your organization. Um, we also uh, subscribe to a number of commercial threat intel feeds. Um, so I'm going to spit out some some vendor names. I'm not um, endorsing any of these vendors, uh, just <laughs> for a caveat for, the org- for everyone listening in. Um, we're a CrowdStrike shop. Um, CrowdStrike provides us Threat Intel as a part of their um, endpoint detection response platform and our subscription to them. We also ingest and process and subscribe to Recorded Futures Threat Intel feeds. Um, we find that um, they do a good job of combing open source and then combining it with some closed sources and giving us a picture of the threat actors that target us, as well as vulnerabilities and also things like uh, compromised accounts and credentials. Um, we also curate and develop a lot of uh, internal threat intelligence. Um, what I mean by that is we ingest about 14 terabytes a day of telemetry across our ecosystem, and um, we enrich it by um, combining some of the um, atomic indicators of compromise um, and you know pieces, things like pieces of malware that we find, um, some of the behaviors that we find with um, external sources like VirusTotal to get a picture of the threat actors that are targeting us. So that we can build our own picture of the actors that and, and profile the actors that are targeting our organization and try to get in front of their attacks. Um, and what we find is that, um, you know, some of the commercial intel feeds and ISACs, they give you a picture of what's already happened. We're trying to get up the upstream in the kill chain. I think um, uh, Jen Easterly likes to say left of boom. And I, I think that's that's really you know where we have to be as network defenders. Um, in, or, in, in order to get there, we have to really look at um, not the delivery phase and later in the kill chain, but actually the weaponization phase and earlier things like adversary reconnaissance, adversary weaponization. And in order to do that, again, you have to really comb your environment and enrich your own detail and, and come to your own conclusions. Very good. Chris, um, your thoughts around threat intelligence. You know, Adam, I don't know if uh, Clear Data provides Threat intelligence, you can let us know that if that's something you do. Um, if not, just your quick thoughts, because Adam mentioned, and Kim also mentioned, multiple sources. Obviously, you're going to get multiple sources of threat intelligence. Then it's still on you to somehow collate, right? I don't know if they have ind- different individuals in charge with reviewing 
the streams from each of those sources. But at some point, things have to come together into a dashboard or some kind of picture. Uh, so your thoughts there on threat intelligence? Yeah, I, I think both said it well. Uh, understanding the two categories of intel intelligence, if you will. You've got the internal intelligence, you've got the external intelligence. On the internal side, it's you know it's important to to use what you've got in front of you. And in our case, we have about ten thousand or so active threat sensors that we've deployed into into over two hundred and fifty or so healthcare organizations that are that are our customers, and that gives us a tremendous amount of, of highly actionable intelligence in almost real time. Uh, certainly, we go through and um, and talk about and, and learn proactive threat actor targeting and campaign tracking. One of the things I love about Australia, by the way, is they, they've actually gone out and said, we're going to start going after these cyber criminals proactively, and we're going to start taking them down. And, and, you know, the FBI has done some of that as well. So understanding who your threat actors are, both externally and internally, is important. Like everyone else here on this call, we also use federal and state agency information. We'll use information from CISA, DHS, NSA, FBI. HISAC is also a great source of information. Um, commercial relationships and partnerships, Anomaly Labs is a great one for us. We use Elastic Security Labs as well, and and all you know, hundred or, or so other open and closed source uh, threat data feeds. You asked a little bit about who does what. Mm -hmm. You know, we we can kind of get into the organizational structure in a bit, but. Um, not everybody does everything. You kind of have to specialize and you have to focus on areas where number, number one, you're interested in and it's fun for you um, or you start to get tired of your job and uh, security. But but it's also important to uh, to have an, an effective organization that, that leverages its talents and skills and its experience. Very good. Okay. Next question. Um... How important is rapid time to remediation, this MTTR um, concept? How do you structure your teams and governance so you can move quickly to address threats when, when they are identified? I assume MTTR often deals with patching, but goes well beyond that. What are your thoughts? Um, Adam, let's go with you first. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, I've seen this used in a few contexts. Um, you know, of course, in the vulnerability management context, it could refer to your time to remediate patches. Oftentimes, what I see though is um, MTTR is one of the I think three or three or four phases of incident response. So, you know, when when a threat actor penetrates your environment, it's your mean time to detect is you know kicks off the investigation, and then you have mean time to contain, which is how quickly can you contain that organ that that breach of your organization and then meantime to respond or re meantime to remediate, um, which is, you know, how quickly can you close all the gaps in your environment to ensure the threat actor can't come back. And what I would say is if you look at it in terms of incident response, meantime to remediate gets you to a place where um, I think you've remediated everything. And that's, that's very important, but the most important uh, phase of incident response in my experience has been meantime to contain which is that second phase, because, you know, I can detect things, if I can detect things relatively quickly, and I can contain things relatively quickly, I can um, limit the risk exposure that my organization faces. And then I can kind of take a little bit of time to remediate as long as I can ensure that, you know, it, at least the glaring gaps, the, the entry vector that the adversary used to get in is, is fixed. 
When it comes to vulnerability patching, though, um, you know, certainly when it comes to zero day vulnerabilities that are exploited in the wild, you need to remediate those very quickly. And we do capture um, metrics, you know, uh, scoring mechanisms around how quickly we can discover and how quickly we can remediate vulnerabilities, again, especially zero day vulnerabilities or unpatchable vulnerabilities that are um, uh, being actively exploited in the wild. It gets tricky though, because as I mentioned, you can't oftentimes patch these vulnerabilities immediately, but sometimes you can put compensating controls in place or detections in place so that you can start to respond to the attacks that you face. The things that um, can be detected through a regular vulnerability scanner, um, best advice that I have is to prioritize those vulnerabilities that come off your vulnerability scanner and, and patch them in a risk forward fashion. So what are the most critical vulnerabilities that you're facing? Um, on internet-facing systems um, with sensitive data on those systems or access to sensitive data, patch those first, and then move on down the prioritization strata. So um, systems that may not be internet-facing but have critical data or are internet-facing but don't have critical data, I mean, come up with a prioritization mechanism that works for your organization and patch them accordingly. And capture metrics to make sure that your teams, really your application owners, are following your security protocols. Very good. Kim, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, there's a lot of meat in this question. Um, I, I guess I would add on to that is really around it, being able to gain efficiencies in each one of those little segments of time. Uh, being able to get to that contained moment, um, that's where you can breathe again, uh, to Adam's point. like be, Being able to restore back to normal from there, uh, that's really where you kind of get your head back together. But those moments up to that point really are going to rely on, on thinking ahead and being prepared, standardizing your runbooks, um, automating as much of those things as you can uh, to, to be able to act on that intelligence that you get when you have that detect moment. Um, making sure that not only do you have those, have them documented, have them accessible, exercise them so that you know that that muscle memory is, is there for your team so that they don't have to dig out checklists and things to try to figure out what to do next. Very good, Chris. I like in the uh, the comments uh, from from Kim is you know you think about practice. You think about my Cardinals. You know they've had a tough season this year, <laughs> and uh, you know th the same would be true for any kind of security team, any ma managed defense and or detection and response team to try to figure out uh, to Kim's point to try to figure out how to respond if you never practice the play. So you never want to practice the play on the football field the first time. You've got to practice, practice, practice. So I fully uh, endorse everything that both Adam and Kim just said. Um, having as well, you know, your designated response roles. Who's, who's the kicker, if you will? Who's going to snap the ball? Those kinds of roles, you know, taking it to the, to the cybersecurity, you know, metaphor, if you will. Um, Making sure that you have a plan. Uh, you don't just call a play and everybody says, let's let's go just run how we want to. Um, you got to have a plan. Who's supposed to do what? Who needs to buckle down and do this? Um, you know, the, the threat intelligence integration is important, but so as well is the, uh, the communication protocols. We just had a, a breach simulation, you know, with our senior leadership team just a couple of weeks ago. And one of the most important parts that we discovered in uh, in the MTTR space was was communication protocols. Who's supposed to talk to whom? 
what should they say? When should they say it? You know, how do you govern around the the, the chatter that happens within a, a company? You know, how do you how do you regulate the the social media posts that will inevitably post pop pop out there? And and um, you know, and then of course your your post incident analysis. There's a lot of different considerations when it comes to uh, to getting into the trenches and actually responding to these events. I don't know that didn't directly answer the the question, but we we were talking about organizational structure and who who does what, and um, just having having all of these things defined is is very important. I'd like to jump in there actually and, and follow that tangent a little bit, Chris. Um, breach simulations, especially for for the, the group that you just mentioned and your executive management, um, you know, it, it might not always be front of mind, top of mind for them. So one of the things that we found to be really valuable as a takeaway from our most recent executive tabletop was uh, the discussion with them around just enabling our responders to make timely decisions, knowing that we might be negatively impacting the business temporarily, right? Um, Ransomware is the thing. It's still the thing. Uh, It's it's the name they know. It's what they're scared of. Um, You know, it's quite possible that if we had had a sniff on something that might be turning into ransomware in our environment, we're going to cut some limbs off in order to protect them, right? So being able to have those discussions so that it's not a surprise in the moment, um, I felt was really valuable. And, and also then that got them thinking about those communications. What would that look like? What would, we be, what would those talking points be to the business to be able to explain to them that we were acting proactively in such a scenario? Um, it, it, Really, really valuable stuff there. If you haven't done one of those, I highly suggest it. They're actually kind of fun. We did ours on Halloween, and uh, our facilitator dressed up like anonymous. It was really quite fun. Um, but to your point, you know, they're <laughs> speaking of taking off limbs to protect the organization. There's a couple of things you got to think about. You know, one is if you're a hospital, you know, and you're going to turn something off. What's that going to do to your to your patient care, your patient safety? You know, so you've got you've got security implications as well as operational resilience considerations, um, cost efficiency, user satisfaction, and then of course, if you're working in, in the, the GDPR world, you got 72 hours to solve everything. Just 72 hours. So in four days if you're publicly traded now. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it seems like this, you know, we've slid easily into a conversation about business continuity planning, disaster recovery, tabletops, and things like that. Adam, is this is this all on a continuum? So this idea of you know containing, isolating these threats when you get intelligence, you need to act on it. It slid so easily into this um, other conversation, mm-hmm. um, and and it's really all about practice, right? It's all about when you have some sort of situation where it's a crisis-like situation and you need speed, that requires practice. It, so that's where there's some similarity here. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it does make sense. And actually, I think maybe I've shared this this quote on previous webinars for Health System CIO, but I, I use this with um, non-technical staff that I talk to quite a bit. And that's the Mike Tyson quote of everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, you, you know, and, and that really plays out in cyber incidents too. You know, the best laid plans, you know, every cyber incident is very different. And so if you think you're going to pull a plan off the shelf and 
follow the step-by-step checkbox or checklist, you know, like a pilot um, starting an airplane or getting ready to take off. That's just flat out wrong. Um, I'd say, you know, to the points that Chris and Kim brought up, you know, practice is your best friend. Um, you know, do cyber incident exercises with all levels, board level, executive level, practitioner level, frontline manager level, and, you know, operational exercises with tactical, technical injects, all the way up to the strategic level exercises with very strategy level injects that get your executives and your board in the mindset of the types of decisions that they're going to have to make during an incident. Because as Kim mentioned, and as Chris alluded to, um, you're going to have to make these calls, these very difficult calls, potentially to virtually isolate branches of your business and potentially impact the ability to do business or to provide patient care in some cases during the heat of the incident and letting those individuals know the types of decisions that you need to be empowered to make as a security leader and the potential implications downstream. Um, again, in- incredibly important, as well as having conversations around, you know, how do you engage with law enforcement and provide technical details to law enforcement during the heat of an incident. You don't want to have to vet every piece of technical detail that you provide to law enforcement through legal. It's going to add mm-hmm. lots and lots and lots of cycle times to information sharing when you know every second matters. So yeah, absolutely. Testing is, is critically important. You mentioned disaster recovery planning. You know, Having disaster recovery planning um, as a part of your cybersecurity program, we align ours to governance, risk, and compliance. Um, because it really is, it's a, it's an exercise in developing written disaster recovery plans, but also conducting exercises to those disaster recovery plans to make sure that you can fail over if a system goes unavailable for a period of time. So that's absolutely important as well. And then lastly, what I'd say is developing relationships with your clinical staff on the floor. So people like your nurse managers, house managers, people that, um, uh, you know, clinical leaders, um, physician leaders, develop those relationships ahead of time so that when you do need to communicate out that um, something's going to be impacted or, you know, for example, you have to go to downtime procedures because a system needs to be rebuilt um, or a biomedical device needs to be taken offline because it was infected with something, having those relationships ahead of time and knowing who to call and, you know, testing that out ahead of time. So they are aware that this could happen and to expect these types of calls is going to save you a ton of time and heartache during an incident. Now, Adam, were you talking about building relationships with clinicians? Mm-hmm. Um, are we talking sort of leadership to leadership? So someone like yourself dealing with the, the CMIO um, or the chief medical officer, or are you getting more actually onto the front lines and speaking with the average physicians? And I mean, to what level would you recommend CISOs get to know people on the clinical side? You have to do both to a certain degree. Um you know, at the executive level, I think you're going to have more and deeper probably interactions um, just by the nature of the role and the types of people, the types of processes that you're going to be setting up. Um, your incident response teams are certainly going to be interacting with people on the front lines, nurse managers, individual clinicians in some cases, individual doctors, you know, performing procedures that may have to wait because a device became impacted. Um, so I'd say as a CISO, um, all levels are important. You're going to go deeper with the executive levels and, and management levels. But, you know, I, I do hospital tours and I sit down with um, nurse managers. With I, I go out and meet individual nurses. They walk me through their processes. I talk about what could potentially happen during a cyber event. We've even done um, exercises down at the individual hospital level where we'll work with, with nursing, nursing staff on the floor and say, hey, you're going to downtime procedures. The exercise inject says, 
ransomware is impacting this hospital. You have to go to downtime procedures. And without going into the technical details of the incident response, it's more of a process-driven incident response exercise with those nursing people on the floor to say, now, how would you do paper charting for the patients that you have to provide care for? And you find some really interesting nuggets and facts about how an individual hospital works. And it's really about planting the seed in those clinicians' minds that, hey, these types of things are within the realm of possibility. And I need to be thinking about how would I revert to paper? You know, people don't really think about that until it has to happen, right? No. And and I think it's, Kim, I think the initial reaction is probably, well, we're going to go to lunch and hope that by the time we get back from lunch that, that you've got the systems yeah. back up. I literally, literally believe that's the case. Um, but then if, you know, you talk about injects, right? And then if you inject the concept of, well, in this scenario, you're going to be down for two weeks and we're not canceling everything and giving you paid time off. So how are you, how are you going to keep working? So just Kim, any thoughts around that? Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. When you start to look at the extended downtimes, it's bad enough. Now we've been, you know, living digitally for so long. A downtime now is not what it was 10 years ago where uh, clinicians were more comfortable with paper. It's more of a, it's more of a culture shock now than it ever was when you have to go into your downtime procedures, unless they are well exercised. Um, And, and, Many health systems do have redundant systems to provide a subset of information electronically, even during a downtime. You'll have maybe a server with some very important critical information for each hospital that they can still access, even if there's no internet connectivity, for example. Uh, But the thing is, once it stops receiving information from your source systems, that information ages and becomes almost dangerous, right? Because you don't know how you don't know how relevant it is in that patient care situation anymore. Um, so when you start looking at an extended downtime beyond the four eight hour mark, uh, you, you really are going to be relying strictly on those downtime procedures in those clinical areas, and being able to relay that information to the business before you're in that scenario is is really important so that they have adequate time to prepare and, and update their processes and know exactly what to expect. Um, because un- unfortunately in our world, it's life and death if they, they aren't successful in, in tr- making that transition. Chris, your, your business is about helping people stay up, right? About providing security, helping the system stay up. So many of these conversations, you know, bleed over into downtime and things like mm-hmm. that. D- do you play in that area? Do you have conversations? Does that come up with your customers a lot? Um, oh, sure. What do you see? What do you see people doing that resonates when you're looking at a customer? And I'm sure you've been in shops where you look around and you go, you guys, you got a lot of work to do. God forbid something happened here today. This wouldn't be good. Well, we, we operate more in the cloud than in than in an on-premises situation. But I remember those days of uh, walking through a data center and saying, what's happening here? But um, if you think about uh, some of the things that, that we're talking about from a disaster recovery to resiliency perspective, I don't know how many of you have just gone through your cyber insurance renewals. Uh, that That's always a fun time period of time in our lives. <laughs> and what, what I was kind of shocked by the fact that, you know, as, as much as a, of a pounding healthcare took over the past couple of years from a ransomware perspective, we're starting to realize that disaster recovery, business continuity, 
all that stuff is is really really important and we're starting to do more of it more effectively and so some of the rates are actually coming down from a cyber liability perspective because healthcare is finally starting to understand that if they have a have a, a place to restore something to and something to restore then then they can bypass some of the the pain that they 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 could see so i think that's it's really important to again practice your resiliency to make it a part of your culture um so so that's that's resonating to me it's 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 nice to see healthcare start to to prepare in the ways that they need to uh, versus being kind of flat-footed in the past just just some thoughts of mine very good excellent all right uh you mentioned cloud uh so let's move to that um talk about mttr as it specifically pertains to cloud workloads are they made more difficult to address rapidly than in-house threats that be more, maybe more under your control? Adam, let's start with you. Yeah, I think you know when it comes to the cloud, we have a tremendous opportunity to um, you know certainly modernize really rapidly in healthcare and adopt some industry-leading tool sets at the same time. I guess not mutually exclusive thoughts, but um, you know, in my experience, responding in the cloud, restoring in the cloud operating in the cloud is not only much easier, but much quicker, um, especially when it pertains to um, resolving an incident, um, certainly when it, uh, as it pertains to containing incidents. And I'd say largely, you know, if we're talking mean time to respond or mean time to remediate, sorry, in um, uh, uh, within the cloud um, to cyber incidents, you know, we use a lot of the same cybersecurity tool suites in the cloud that we use on-prem. Um, and I'd say, you know, the reason why we do that is simply for um, ease of use, ease of training and um, simplicity of the environment and just, you know, having one one single um, operating plane for our operators. Um, within the cloud, though, you know, it, depending on which cloud provider you, you, you use, we're primarily Azure shop. Um, you know, AWS has very similar tool suites, but you have a ton of tools at your disposal when it as a you know, pertains to visibility, manageability, usability, certainly account management's much easier. You don't, um, in a lot of cases, you don't have a lot of the legacy technical debt and baggage that comes along with operating in an on-premise data center, especially within healthcare. I find that there's a lot of legacy technical debt um, that we've been, you know, very laser focused on at Providence. And that slows down your mean time to resolve. So um, yeah, I'd say within the cloud, it, it tends to be much simpler. It tends to be much quicker. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I really prefer to operate within the cloud. I think the tools are, the tools make your life a lot easier. Great, Chris, your thoughts. There's a couple of considerations here when you think about resiliency in the cloud. You've got a lot of dependency on your service provider. So, so you mentioned the the Azure shop on the, in the cloud, Adam, that's, that's one that's fairly mature and probably very commonly used by most providers is what we're seeing. But you also have this thing called that shared responsibility model. And if you haven't dusted that thing off from your contracts with your cloud service provider or the intermediary, like a clear data where we're managing the infrastructure for a, a, a provider, for example, uh, understanding who's supposed to do what, it, you really should have some consideration around that. One of the other challenges that we've seen in the past decade is 
scalability challenges. Uh, sometimes an incident may uh, may scale quicker quicker than you had anticipated. Um, maybe there's some malware that that uh, is being used to mine for Bitcoin or some other thing. We've seen organizations just rack up you know hundreds of thousands of dollars when they're trying to do it themselves and they they miss something and all of a sudden they've got this huge cloud bill because of the scalability issue associated with the vulnerability. Uh, sometimes you've got some network complexity to think about. You've got automation opportunities. Adam, you said, you know, it can be more automated, if you will. It's a lot easier to def- deploy a cloud formation template or a Terraform template quickly to fix something and, and address it across a fleet of 10,000 assets or whatever you're trying to do. And then, of course, you've got the the worldwide um, scale of the cloud. So depending on where your cloud data or your, your PHI is, you know, helping to understand where it is is first the, the first challenge that you have to think about. Where is it? Is it in a locality that I that it, that it's supposed to be in? And um, it, you know, can I get a handle on my cloud workload? Or has has Shadow IT kind of gone off the 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 track and done their own thing and you may not have full visibility. So those kinds of considerations, the compliance, the legal considerations are also certain things that can make it a little bit more complex, if you will. Very good. Kim, your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, talking about your own workloads in the cloud is kind of been what you guys were, were focused on. But Chris, when you, you talked about the shared responsibility model, um, that's something that I, I often look at in our third-party risk management as well, right? So our SaaS um, applications that are, you know, the cloud is just somebody else's data center. It, it's mm-hmm. <laughs> um, So how, how good are they at securing uh, and holding up their end of that bargain? Really, um, Understanding, doing that vetting of those third parties, especially if they're going to have, uh, you know, direct connectivity into your environment. Um, really knowing, understanding, and documenting all of that, all of those connections for those those third party folks, I would say, is is equally important um, when we're to, when we're talking about cloud security for this MTTR discussion. Absolutely, big stuff. All right, uh, let's stick with you, Kim. What role can and do managed cyber services play for today's health systems dealing with talent or staffing shortages? Yeah. Um, who, show of hands, who has all of the talent that they need to do everything <laughs> on all of the teams right now? Probably not too many people raising their hands. Uh, I, I think when we're looking at specific skill sets, you're, you're going to have to supplement sometimes. So identifying where you're going to get your, your biggest bang for your buck um, is really key here. Around uh, managed cyber services, you can, that a lot of folks will outsource their sort of core operations. Um, they might be doing some things with threat intel. As, as Adam said earlier, I, don't, I, I hate to throw names out there of vendors that we use, but we are also a CrowdStrike shop. Um, and, and we do have Overwatch. So with the topic being threat intel and threat hunting, you know, we, we, we do have a reliance on them to do some of that work that's not done by one of my necessarily frontline engineers. Um, and exercising that it is important, too, to make sure that they're effectively uh, coming to the table and identifying things that are going maybe a little bit sour in your environment. Um, 
I think uh, to tie in the cyber insurance question as well, that's been a question that I've been asked the last couple of years is, you know, are you using a third party to supplement your, your team? How are you covering 24 by seven services to make sure that you've got, you know, a hands on keyboard and you're ready to act in, in the event that you're needed to. Um, and, and that's kind of been nudged in the direction of an expectation there. So um, we do have a, a 24 by seven manned knock sock configuration for us. But um, we're always reevaluating what kind of supplement we might be needing to do to just keep those efficiencies in play. Very good. Adam, your thoughts? I think it's the age-old question of build versus buy. Um, depending on the size of your organization, it may make sense to build certain services in-house because you need the specific focus and, and you know tailorability, I suppose, for the service, for your internal customers, um, and the ability to scale as well, um, depending on the size of the managed service provider or what service you're looking at outsourcing, the ability to scale can become challenging. Um, I've had great experiences in the past, in past roles um, with managed service providers, and I've had really poor experiences with managed service providers. And what I find with managed service providers in general is they have to serve all of their clients um, so you're you're never going to get the level of control or tailorability with a managed service provider that you would by being by building your capability in house. That said, um, the point around talent and staffing really comes into play. If you're unable to attract the right level of talent or the level of talent that you need within the geographies that you operate. Um, or you have high turnover, maybe it does make sense to hold a managed service provider accountable to operating to service level agreements versus trying to manage that team internally. Um, you know, it, it's Providence's size and scale. We tend to build things and operate internally ourselves just simply because, again, scalability becomes a real concern. The tailorability of the services uh, become a real concern. And the complexity of the business uh, is a real concern when it comes to managed service providers. And there's not a ton of managed service providers bar the, you know, very large operators that can scale to Providence's volumes. Um, I mentioned that we're ingesting and processing 14 terabytes a day of, of telemetry in-house just for our cybersecurity incident response capability. That doesn't count any of the other telemetry that we use for system diagnostics and, um, and uh, IT incident response. Um, it's not, I guess, the full, um, the full universe of data at our fingertips. And, and we're growing that you know, every day. Um, and again, because we operate a university, a high school, um, we're PCI in scope, we're HIPAA in scope, we're operating internationally. There's not a ton of international of uh, service providers that can operate um, with the level of agility and flexibility that we need within all of those different um, mm -hmm. lines of the road. Uh, one last item that I would note on managed service providers is around commodity plays. Um, I do believe that there are some services in cybersecurity that are commodity services nowadays. Um, things like, um, I'll just use the example of, since Kim brought up third-party risk, sending out vendor questionnaires for vendors to fill out and then getting those questionnaires back in response and doing some basic level of risk triage on those questionnaires. That's a, that's a real commodity service. And we're actually looking at, you know, should we be doing that internally ourselves or should we refocus our risk analysts on higher level of order, higher higher um, higher risk items for our organization, like doing in-depth risk analysis and driving, driving movement within the business to address those risks. 
Very good. Chris, so uh, Adam mentioned he's had good experiences and bad experiences. So what do you do to make sure that your customers have good experiences and you're on that side of the ledger? Well, I think it's managing expectations up front and then it's it's fulfilling your brand promise. It's, uh, you know, like any other uh, service offering, you have to do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it and you have mm-hmm. to be held accountable. And you, you really need to understand what, I mean, we focus purely on healthcare. And there's a reason we only focus on healthcare because healthcare is just different enough that you can't be, you know, a generalist. It, it, we have discovered and, and be successful in understanding, you know, the the connectivity that has to happen within health systems, the the nuances with deprecated ciphers like a TLS 1.0 or something still in use because some piece of software doesn't allow it somewhere else. And so what kind of compensating controls? I think, Adam, you, you mentioned some of that earlier in terms of some compensating controls. But, but it's really just doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's it's innovating as you go. It's leveraging um, new methods, new technologies in a way that's safe mm-hmm. and that we make sure that our customers can operate in a safe way. AI is one of those big examples right now. And, you know, how do we, how do we use that with, within the, the bounds of, of HIPAA compliance, both the, the privacy rule, the security rule, all the rules, the breach notification rule, and how do you do so in a way that allows you to experiment and understand what you can do? Uh, so anyway, it's just, there's just a lot of different things that we think about every single day to try to make it better for our customers in the healthcare space. Kim, any thoughts on on those arrangements? And and um, you know, it's it's funny. People have spoken in the past. That a lot of times, when there's dissatisfaction, the individual, the executive, the CIO or the CISO, who's you're having the discussion with, if they're unhappy, it's something they inherited, right? I came in and there was this arrangement. Nobody's ever happy with an arrangement they walked into. It's always right. It's always like, oh my god, I can't believe it, right? Well, somebody was doing their best when they came up with that theoretically, but um, any thoughts there on uh, sort of structuring these things for success? Um, well, I guess to hit that point, uh, as well as the, the brand promise that Chris was just speaking of, I, I think one of the things that I look at when I'm looking for a partnership with a vendor uh, of any kind, whether it's for an, a project or a longer term uh, partnership to supplement whatever is going on, you really have to be able to bond and understand what you're getting out of that vendor. They have to operate as, as an extension of your team. They really need to understand your environment and your expectations and be able to do some of that beyond the commodity services that, that Adam spoke to. Um, you have to have some longevity and you know turnover matters, right? Am I going to have a different guy every time I call? Uh, those types of things. That, you know, When you have... Uh, somebody that you know you can call and reliably get that information, that help when you need it. I think that that matters just as much sometimes as the the metrics and the SLAs that we build into a contract uh, because that's that's really where the, the longevity is in a relationship between two vendors, two, two partners. Adam, anything you want to add there in terms of things that, you know, I said, yeah. you, you mentioned that sometimes not everything's going to work out with you guys because you're so big, but when you are going to get into something, um, where you, you, and listen, both you want, you want your partner to be successful, 
right? Because yeah, you don't absolutely. achieve anything if you drive so hard a deal that it hurts them. So that's something people mention sometimes. Yeah, you know, the partnership certainly is very important. I think Kim brought up a great point that the support model needs to be on point as well. If I have to wait hours on an incident response bridge to get help from my one of my managed service partners, then it's just not going to work. Um, and, you know, I am committed to partnering with our third-party providers on their services and ensuring that they can be successful as well as we can be successful. And I feel like we try to be as... Um, as reasonable as possible in some of the interactions. Um, but, you know, in the past, I've, you know, your question around people tend to be not as happy with inherited services as mm. they, uh, as they are with services that they get to pick and choose. You know, there's some level of, you know, I guess, personal psychology that comes into play with that. And I can't, I can't really comment on that, but, but uh, what I will say is if I step into an organization and I had, this has happened to me in the past and I, and I look at say a 24 by seven SOC managed service, which is supplementing our incident response uh, uh, internal capability. And I look at the managed service for the SOC and it doesn't meet industry standards, basic industry standards for what a SOC needs to be doing and the level of attention that a SOC needs to be paying to individual alerts that came in within the last 24 hours. As a practitioner myself who grew up in a SOC, I'm going to sniff that out really fast and that's going to, I'm going to take action on that very quickly um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm committed to, again, ensuring that our managed service providers can see success in what they in what they do at, because, you know, they're a partner of ours and I'm relying on them for a critical service. At the same time, if the level of attention and service isn't there, that's going to get sniffed out really yeah. quickly by people like Kim and I, and we're going to make changes. Absolutely. When yeah. you know your business, it's it's easy to spot. You look at something and you go, yeah. this this is just ridiculous. This is not industry standard. Um Let's go to uh, my favorite section, ask a co-panelist. Chris, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask one or both of your co-panelists. Okay, well, all right. I love that. So, Adam, tell me, if you would, the craziest incident that you guys have had to to fight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, How much time do we have? yeah, when I was a government employee, I was on point for Homeland Security for the RSA breach. That was interesting um, a while back. Um, when I was the CERT leader for Booz Allen Hamilton, I was um, the incident response leader internally for the Edward Snowden case, which was also a really interesting case. Wow. Um, and then and that was probably the craziest one because of all the externalities involved. I mean, it was like, where's Edward today? He's in China and then he's in Russia and it's like, okay. And then, you know, the government steps, it knocks on your door and says, Hey, we're here to help. And, you know, (laughs) all these things. So that was an interesting case. Um, Yeah. And then the fraud, the types of fraud that you see in the payment card industry are just fascinating. Um, We were able to um, uncover a massive fraud ring operating in the Midwest using cybersecurity telemetry across our payment card systems. And so when I was at uh, GE's Capital's retail unit, so that that was a really fascinating case. And just it spoke to, I guess, the convergence of fraud, cybersecurity and physical security and the partnerships with external providers. And then in healthcare, of course, we see that I think the most targeted attacks and some really nasty stuff, but I'd say as an industry, you know, the, the healthcare providers themselves, and I think some of the more mature third parties in the space are actually doing fairly well nowadays, 
but there's still onesie twosie small mom and pop shops um, providing services to healthcare providers. And we see these things get popped every week. And some of the, um, some of the, uh, the failure modes are just, you know, head scratchers. Um, and, and in some cases it's very impactful for the healthcare system's ability to operate. So, yeah, I mean, some fascinating cases, I guess, long answer, I'd say probably the Snowden case. That was, that was interesting. All right. Yeah, well, we're what- going to have a, we got to have a webinar just on that one. Oh, I love it. I love it. I was going to say, I can't wait to see Adam interviewed in some kind of Netflix special, but maybe we'll just yeah. do it here. Yeah. We'll do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah, no desire. I'm going to stay on Health System CIO. I love it. Love yeah. it. It's a good choice. That's a good choice. Uh, Kim, do you have a question I, for one? Oh, go ahead. I, I do. Yeah. Go I've got a question for Adam. Um, yeah. One of your very first responses today was about internal telemetry with the threat intel. Um, and, that, you know, that really piqued my interest. So um, we've got a, one of the newer platforms now from CrowdStrike around identity protection. And when oh, I cool. look yeah. in that console, I just see so much information that we're really not, we haven't quite figured out how to pull that value out of there. So I'm really interested in what you've done, how you how you identified where to kind of start with that telemetry specifically on your internal users? Yeah, Yeah, um, we're not a Falcon Identity customer yet. um, And we're looking at a couple other competing solutions. I know Microsoft has a solution in that space as well. Um, It is it is a need. And actually, that's a it's a pretty cool capability from what I've seen the ability to, uh, you know, push MFA out to any system, even if it doesn't support it, which is fantastic. Um, So I can't speak to that particular subset of the CrowdStrike platform, what I will say is on, so I'll give you an example. I, I mentioned virus total. So what we're doing is tracking threat actors in the weaponization uh, phase of the kill chain um, who are targeting us. The way w- that we're doing that is um, we're capturing telemetry on inbound emails, for example, and using um, detonations on malicious files to pull out um, uh, intelligence and then run it against virus total to say, um, not only, um, you know, what are the specific hits on this piece of, uh, malware or the specific pieces of intelligence within the piece of malware, but what can we pivot on, um, within those individual pieces of intelligence to find other pieces of malware that are being used to target other hospital systems or potentially find, um, using actor tracking methods, um, specific actors building other um, toolkits or other other pieces of malware that we can then download out of the system and then detonate ourselves hmm. and then expand our our knowledge and visibility of that actor's entire tool suite versus just the one that got sent to us. Hmm. Um, and that's just one example. I mean, there's tons of other examples about you know looking for patterns of behaviors in your organization around the identity um, arena using things like conditional access to inform your proactive uh, detections and proactive protections. So tons and tons of, I guess, opportunities in the Intel space. It's really just a matter of, you know, how, how would you attack yourself? And then what are the types of things you need to look for to, to find those attacks? Yeah, really nice. That's actually why we brought in that. Um, it's funny that you hit on MFA to begin with for that, that solution. That's, that was one of our leading reasons to look into that platform. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Adam, uh, we have a few minutes left. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, I guess I'd pose the same question back to you, Kim. I mean, from a 
um, Intel and incident response standpoint, I guess, number one, how are you thinking about global operations for your incident response or not global operations, but like 24 <laughs> by seven operations or global? I mean, but how are you operating in a 24 by seven fashion, understanding these actors never sleep? And when you have an incident, like how do you scale into those incidents and, um, and operate in a way that doesn't burn people out? Yeah, we're not as big as you. Um, so we're not global, uh, but we do still have to, right? We're, we're a hospital. We don't shut down either. We have to have um, somebody kind of manning the systems all the time. And right now we've got a little bit of a hybrid and, and we're evaluating if we do need some more help. Our, our knock-sock uh, kind of combination, we've, we've just made some org changes actually to integrate um, the SOC folks more on the infrastructure side, which has given them additional pieces and tools, uh, visibility that they didn't have before in our sort of build versus run model. Uh, they, they've, they've kind of been in a silo previously. So kind of joining in there gives us, you know, it's just a wealth of information that we didn't have before. It's definitely opened up our eyes. Um, and we are really just looking now to see it, what is that expectation from a risk perspective for us to be able to do more than have our frontline folks who are doing that initial triage pass it to an engineer who's on call? Do we need to be doing more? I think there's a lot of people, uh, a lot of peers that I've spoken to are going through similar conversations now. Um, again, I think coming out of COVID, there's a lot of people who are reevaluating their staffing models and where they're supplementing, um, being able to pull additional resources from further geographic areas, uh, implementing something like a follow the sun model, right, where, where that's possible, um, even with your internal staffing. All right, very good. We have time for final thoughts. Chris, I want to start with you. Um, you could either go with sort of the general overview of what our webinar was today, or we've we've hit on a lot of issues today. But your final best piece of advice for um, the folks at hospitals and health systems, we got some different size. You know, Kim's got four hospitals. Adam has 50 health systems, you know, vary in size. You got a 25 bed critical assets hospitals and you've got um, up there an Adam size. So. Wherever you want to, whatever wisdom you want to drop on our folks today as we finish up. Well, I don't, I don't know how earth-shaking this bit of advice would be, but for those of you who are manning the stations, guarding the the galaxy, if you will, <laughs> um, you know, focus on the basics. Focus, you know, a lot of times we we think about the grandiose, you know, big shiny thing that you you can deploy or whatever, and those are great, but focusing on cyber hygiene you know the blocking and tackling every single day mm -hmm. of you know making sure that you you hit your marks make sure that you understand what needs to be patched what doesn't you know end of life is a big issue think about that there was just a a new york attorney general who fined uh, u.s radiology at 450 grand for using outdated hardware um one of those interesting cases. So, so again, I think it's just blocking and tackling, doing the things that you know you need to do, and uh, and aligning that to a to risk based approach uh, that that Kim has talked about extensively in this in this webinar. So, grateful for both uh, Adam and Kim for your dedication in healthcare. Uh, we we actually uh, share the same uh, mission, the same values of trying to protect healthcare so that our patients can live and 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 survive these you know times of 
of uh, cyber attacks and and everybody can thrive. So thank you for your service, if you will. And, and great practical advice there, Chris. Uh, Kim, your your final and and the way I would phrase uh, frame it up for you would be somewhere at a comparable sized health system. So someone in your position at a comparable sized health system. What's your best piece of advice? Yeah, I mean, I. I would go along the same lines as what Chris said. I think um, we didn't speak too much to um, even compensating controls today, but um, it, the speed to resolving an issue if you're you're dealing with something is obviously really important, but making sure that you're doing those basics, basics being brilliant at the basics, uh, having your MFA, you know, making sure that people can't exfiltrate easily, um, those things done ahead of time before you're in the heat of a moment in an incident mm -hmm. are really going to pay back in dividends. Um, so things that may be introducing friction might be worth another look at. And also just being mindful of your overall exposure. Excellent, Kim. Adam, we'll give you the last word. That was some okay. pretty wild stuff you were talking about before. Yeah. That guy was like pretty cool. It's been um, an interesting ride for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like you get to have some real fun over there. But anyway, you. go ahead. Your best, piece, <laughs> your best piece of advice. Uh, I, I love what Chris and Kim said, focusing on the basics. Um, uh, well, really two things for me. Focusing on the basics, number one, because no fancy AI tool is going to help you with um, – you know, your attack surface, I mean, with with the basics on your attack surface or the basics around how you manage privilege in your environment. And those are the types of things that lead to breaches, not a lack of a fancy AI tool. Um, so yeah, focus on the basics, number one. And then number two, um, we started off with mean time to resolve. Um, so I'll say um, from an incident response standpoint, focus on your ability to detect and contain. I'd say th those are the things that, again, lead to the most negative outcomes in organizations um, when you're facing incidents is, number one, your ability to detect. So have your eyes and ears, if you will, um, in every place of your organization, every place of your, inter your information ecosystem, because your lack of coverage in one system is going to, is going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. Um, and then your containment, um, is, you know, largely process driven. So again, test it while you're not under fire so that when you are under fire, you know what to do and you know who to call and they know what to do as well. Excellent. Wonderful. Great chat. Uh, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to work with us, can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous and wonderful panel, Kim Alkire, Adam Zoller, and Chris Bowen. I want to thank Clear Data for making this event possible and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks.